Thanks for joining us for this week's Comparative Media Studies and Writing podcast, this one with filmmaker Guy Madden. Just to note that the first voice you'll hear, Professor William Arikio, will sound a little Skypey. He was really there, but his mic wasn't. He pushed up the volume that Guy's mic caught up William. Enjoy. So welcome. Um, I should warn I should warn the people in the back. This is a conversation. Normally, if we were lecturing, we would project to the back walls, but it's kind of hard, a little stilted to have a conversation that way. Yeah, anyway, well, we, we can. So, so the closer can hear us, right? by, the better. Yeah. Um, for some crazy idea, I've decided to let my screensaver play behind me. I don't know how smart that is. I can't remember what's on it. I'm sure I can explain anything that does appear, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's boredom insurance anyway. <laughs> And what, what will we say in collages that you have done? Or you I don't know, that? maybe. I tend not to put that. They're just, they're probably frame grabs from favorite movies and things that I wanted to remember to try to steal a compositional idea from or just things that I like to look at when my laptop defaults. To, it's just a screensaver. That's all. Nothing special. Well, just like anyone else's screensaver. Well curated one. Yeah. So my name is William Iricchio, Comparative Media Studies slash writing, and I'm here with Guy Madden, Winnipeg's gift to humanity, to the film world, certainly, and increasingly yes. the interactive installation and book world. Yeah. Uh, 11 feature-length films, a lot of shorts, and amazing shorts. If you don't know his work, uh, you'll get a peek and glimmer at some of it today, but a lot of it's out there, and it's fantastic. And um, I guess the arc of our conversation uh, will probably go from some sense of where this begins. Uh, Guy's vocabulary, the vocabulary that a number of his films use, is remarkable. Um, references is informed by um, some really classic moments in early cinema, but recontextualized and re reframed, remade. Um, and we'll get a glimmer of that. And his newest work, we'll end up with some of his newest work, his yet to be released work, that is. Um, yeah. Um, I learned to sit still. That's interactive. And uh, it's a project called Seance, being done with the National Film Board of Canada, uh, that I can't wait to see because I'm in love with interactivity and your okay. work. So the combination. And I'll admit right up front, I'm starstruck. I'm a fan. I'm not a fan. I always think of fandom as an. A state of being, like you're born a fan or you're not, and I'm really not. But this is one of those rare moments when, when actually. I'm well, you're very sweet, and thanks for coming, everyone. I know what you. I, I'm not, like, you know, whatever. I'm not a. <laughs> I'm like a grade H celebrity, even in my hometown. But um, I don't know what to do with celebrities anyway. I remember being in Tokyo once, and someone said, uh, "Kira Kurosawa's just downstairs," and I went. Uh, you know, like, what? nah, I'll just stay up here. I didn't want to go, well, I, what was I supposed to do? Go touch him or something? I knew he existed and now I knew he was downstairs, you know, so I, I didn't really do anything with him. But then I saw, this was in 1992, and I saw Christopher Lee at the same function at, with talking to Toshiro Mifune. And, and because I was in, in his, their presence, I, um, I, all I, did was the same thing I did with Salman Rushdie once when I saw him at a party. I just went up behind Rushdie and, and Mifune and uh, Christopher Lee and just eavesdropped. <laughs> I don't know. 
and tried to arrange to have a friend take my picture. And, um, and then Christopher Lee busted me when he saw that I was sneaking around to have my picture taken. He said, I, I, I would just pose for a picture with you if you want. And so that, <laughs> I felt like, felt this big and ridiculous. But uh, anyway, here I am. But that triggers just smaller a, than life. A parenthetical thought of a, a project that wasn't made, could have been, with Christopher Lee. Oh, right. Yeah, I had uh, I started working on a project. It was going to be no good. I, I finally got, uh, after surviving my 20s as maybe the laziest person in a very lazy country, Canada, I, I don't know, it seems we're just not entrepreneurially driven, put it that way. Uh, and I was really, I spent a lot of horizontal, dreamy hours in my 20s. But I finally got... I made a feature at age 32, I made another one at age 34, another one at 36, and I was determined to start making them every year instead of every two years. And really, I was so high on having overcome my laziness, and they were a lot of hard work, that I pushed a project called The Dyke Master's Daughter, uh, which was supposed to have Christopher Lee in it, and um, into production way before it was ready. It was supposed to be an operetta, and it didn't have any songs written yet, and yet I was still you know, designing sets. And then that was right, uh, that was in 1993, just uh, Lini Riefenstahl lined up to come out of acting retirement in it, which I'm really glad I didn't have anything to do with. Um, the the Christopher bio. Lee, Christopher <laughs> Lee, I'm writing Lini Riefenstahl. Yeah, together for the first time. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I had, I had uh, always, uh, you know, as someone who had heard of Lini Riefenstahl, in the 70s as a controversy, controversial was the term used to describe her in those pre-internet days. And, but she was a great filmmaker, but controversial. And, um, and so I got all kind of starstruck with how uh, the great filmmaker part. And I started to get some really nasty feedback from friends about even talking to her. But she had written me first a little flirtatious fan letter, which was incredible to receive. But, wow. you know, smelt a bit of hellfire, you know. <laughs> it was the placenta, the, the embryo treatments. So. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, the project fell through um, because the funding bodies in Canada don't just give away money to anybody. It seems like they do because I got money even just to make my first movie even before I even having made a movie. But they smelled something was wrong with this and they... They, they pulled the plug on it, and I, and I collapsed. I, the fact is, I just didn't have, I didn't have a reason to make it. I didn't have a reason anymore. And I sort of wandered for a few years in a, in a desert until I found a reason to make films again. Not a literal one, but a, but a kind of a, just a, a really bummed out desert, because I'd finally surmounted all my laziness, and only to find myself banished by lack of inspiration into um, inactivity. It really bummed me out. So one of the... And thank God I did not make a movie with Lainey Riefenstahl. I'd be living that down to this day, you know, yep. But you did with Anne Savage. Anne Savage, and the he, next best thing to Lainey Riefenstahl, absolutely. but without the Holocaust connection. Oh, yeah, the yeah. connection. Yeah. yeah, Anne Savage, for anyone who doesn't know who she is, and that's many of you, I'm sure, is uh, a B-movie legend. She was the star of this uh, poverty role picture called Detour most legendarily shot in eight days and her bits were sh it's the only movie she's famous for really and she, her bit was shot in three right days right yeah very f ferocious she is the most ferocious femme fatale in film noir history and 
Um, and I remember when I had just finished writing the script for this docu-fantasia, I called it about my hometown, my Winnipeg, which had lots of autobiographical elements in it. Um, I was so proud of myself, I just kicked back and I started answering some emails and a friend of mine, that, I, that uh, Dennis Bartok, that curated the American Cinematheque in LA said, what are you up to? And I said, I just finished a script about my hometown. If only Anne Savage were alive to play my mother. I'd be set. And he said, well, she is alive. I have her phone number. I just saw her the other day, you know, and that sort of thing. So next thing I knew, I was phoning her, just more scared than I'd ever been phoning someone for a date or anything. And she was really terrifying and um, uh, just, as, just as frightening as she is in the movie Detour. And, um, yeah. and she came to Winnipeg for a few terrifying days. I was really relieved when she was gone. <laughs> and... Uh, but anyway, I have worked with her. So the legends are of the, you know, you got to kind of explain who they are, <laughs> variety. But they are legends in niche, little and very strong ones in niche places that I've been lucky enough to work with. So let me just thank Beja for putting this together. I mean, thank you, Beja, because it's really thank a, you. A, it's a treat to have this here. And jump to the beginning, like Winnipeg. So my Winnipeg is a terrific, I mean, as someone who looks at the world through a documentary lens, a wonderful, a wonderful film, a provocative one. Um, but the, I was, you know, in getting ready for this, stumbled across the Winnipeg film scene, which I hadn't known really much about, and which obviously you figured prominently in. Um, I see from some of your earlier films that you've been in touch, we talked earlier about this, the Professor's Delights, a student who grows up to be a fantastic filmmaker and stays in, you know, is informed by what happens in the classroom and stays in touch with some of some of your instructors, and that's that's really seems to have been generative for at least for a time. So yeah, half the about that next half year. my professor friends. Uh, I just started hanging out. I, I graduated, uh, and too young. I didn't know what to do, and so I started to going back to school just to hang out. I started to sneak into darkened classrooms that were showing movies, and I soon was noticed. But the profs would look the other way and let me stick around, and I just got. You know, I'd, I'd even sit through their lectures and things, and um, I became friends with them. Some of them didn't know how to drive, so I'd drive them home you know, or something in return for being left loud stay in their classes. Eventually, uh, I started casting them because I didn't know that, you know, a lot of them, I don't know, they just I, were frustrated actors or something. I'm not sure, but they were, once I started making my own movies around age 29 or so, um, this little network of, of profs, some of them with fantastic bushy beards and weird eccentric, you know, too, ma too much book learning faces and things like that, um, made, made for really photogenic subjects. And so uh, they were quite game, especially for a terrible performance, which is all I really required from them. Just a, will a willingness to get in front of the camera and represent something, you know. So it was, I not only stayed in touch with them, but I even collaborated with one, my old friend George Tolles, um, became my screenwriting partner for many years. And uh, I've, I've subsequently become partners with Evan Johnson, who was, while I taught university, it was my turn. Uh, he was my student, he's about half my age, but he's my partner now because he was a very keen student and he stayed in touch with me after he finished working with me and we started working together. It's great. So, I'm not sure if it's the source of your, some of your vocabulary, but you know, the thing I said earlier, German Expressionism, Soviet Constructivism, those were two learning points um, in the history of film where if 
you can't compete with Hollywood for 200 bucks, don't try to do a lame Hollywood film, embrace another kind of style and go somewhere with it. And, it, and of course, what came out of that was profound, and you, you're not repurposing that vocabulary, but you are kind of in conversation with it somehow. Yeah, I, I learned, well, I learned really early on, I think if I had any strength, I certainly was not very good, I can say this here at MIT, was not good technically. Uh, I knew uh, from my experience of attempting to take snapshots of people wearing their Christmas sweaters that I could not photograph anything. Uh, I knew I was unlikely to be a great editor ever or um, a great lighting person. Uh, but I saw very early on in my cinephilia, in my mid-twenties, I suddenly caught the bug of watching movies. I saw Luis Bunuel's Lage d'Or, it's still one of my favorite movies. I can still watch it with a lot of pleasure. Uh, it's a movie that was, it really looks primitively put together. It's, it's, it's got a narrative, but it's a, it's a surrealist narrative. Uh, there's intentionally no continuity. There, it, you, it intentionally uses non-actors. It has one actor in it, Gaston Madeau, uh, this male lead, but everyone else are friends or enemies or people from the art scene or, or uh, patrons of the arts that just showed up and acted in this picture. It's, it's really jagged, it's, it's willfully ugly in places, and it uses stock footage and tries to pass it off as not stock footage, stuff like that, you know. Uh, it's just really aggressively handmade and really exciting. And when I discovered that a movie didn't have to look like a big slick Hollywood movie, but just have some cool ideas which I thought, gee, maybe I stand a chance of having some ideas and, and something that's actually exciting and all the stronger and more impressive for being handmade and low budget. Um, that, that made me want to make movies right there. Um, Eraserhead, to a certain degree, did too, although a, certainly a lot more care went into making that film. Uh, David Lynch famously took five years to make his first feature. And it's you know really carefully lit and and but the acting is very mannered and stylized on Hollywood like and there's a really beautiful sound design in it too. So once again I thought ah oh, sound design I can do that you know I don't know it's just there's a certain amount of naivete and ignorance and just excitement to do things and and there's ways of cheating like just stealing someone else's sound design cutting it out from a movie and collaging it in and and things. So I, I just I was just excited to what I liked about. So I guess the two, the two movies that really galvanized me, and I saw them about the same time, around 1980, uh, were Lage d'Or and Eraserhead. Eraserhead, not so much because of it was primitive, but because it was about something that I felt. I'd, I was a young father already, uh, an unplanned pregnancy, and, and Eraserhead's a story, kind of a nightmarish, uncomfortable story about an unplanned pregnancy told from the father's point of view. It's clearly a Lynch autobiography. He's got the gall to deny it. Uh, but, um, and he's exactly 10 years older than I am and he has a daughter exactly 10 years older than my daughter and things like that and, and my daughter was a lot cuter than the eraser head baby but, um, it, but the, the fact is I could just feel like a lot of people come out of there going that was weird what was that about and I just knew it was about me and, um, and, and I felt it and I couldn't sleep that night and I'd never had a film do that to me before robbed me of a night's sleep. And um, so that was really galvanizing as well. And, I, and so the silent move of vocabularies that I later 
seem to have mastered came out from the fact that I was just starting out the way silent movies just started out. I just started, I read um, a little book on how to light. Uh, there's a basic three light setup that those of you may have studied film lighting may have heard of. There's a key light that, you know, casts the, the main light for the subject. There's a fill light that sort of softens the shadows. And sometimes there's a backlight that makes a little rim of light around the back of the head to pop you out from two dimensionality into a kind of a 3D, a simulated 3D world. Well, I plugged in my three lights on the very first day of shooting and just had an actor with three nose shadows and it looked hideous. So I unplugged the backlight and it's down to two nose shadows, unplugged the fill light, was down to one nose shadow that looked like a mustache, you know, and so I got him to move his head until the mustache was shortened and, and he looked his best and then I just shot and, and I sort of, and I, when I got the film back from the lab, it, it was very shadowy. Um, the, there, there was light on the face, a bit too, too exposed, a bit burnt out, and then he graded off into shadowy oblivion in behind, and everything looked like German Expressionism. Uh, and and I, I just kept lighting that way because I realized it had atmosphere. And then I started laying in sound design, and I, and I guess I kind of understand narrative the way Expressionism is narrowed. Someone ex explained that Expressionism is just the... Uh, a, a, a type, a, a language of art in which the interior landscape is just represented in the exterior landscape. And that's so simple to me, I could understand that. Uh, I went, ah, oh, Racerhead is, is expressionist because all that oppressive industrial drone and radiator hissing and shadows and everything is exactly what's going on in the protagonist's head. That's kind of close enough to expressionism for me. I can do something like that. And I, I didn't particularly love silent movies. I'd just seen a few. And, um, but I, because I was good at it or just bad at regular lighting, I found myself obsessing on that stuff and watching it more and then really falling in love with it and then learning that I could do it. So I ended up kind of rewriting film history from the very beginning for myself. Just, and, and then I, I then started the elaborate process of rationalizing. Uh, why, am I, why are you just imitating old movies? And I, I would say, and it, it's, the rationalization worked so well for me, I came to believe it, that, uh, well, in its industrial haste, the great art form of film was always throwing away still perfectly great vocabulary units long before they were worn out. And all I had to do was go back on the road of film history and pick up these perfectly working um, vocabulary units and repurpose them for myself and use them any way I wanted. I could use something from 1910 or something from 1930 or something from as recent, uh, if I decided to, as from the 70s underground film movement, I, I just decided I could uh, appropriate. I, didn't, I hadn't made a study of the history of fine art or anything, uh, the history of appropriation or anything. I just kind of reinvented it myself, a kind of, um, you know, Pierre Menard, <laughs> um, author of Quixote, I did my own, but not quite as accurately. Uh, history of repurposing and stuff, just to see how much I could get away with. I was always uh, safe from charges of plagiarism because I was such a lousy plagiarist <laughs> that by the time the things I'd copied or had appropriated were transplanted into my pictures, half the time they were, they were unrecognizable as the thing I had attempted to take. And then 
also, they had to survive the editing process. Lots of times I'd steal things, but they were just, they were grafted on like an organ transplant in which the doctor has moronically put the organ on the outside of the body instead of on the inside or something. These, these things I took, these vital organs from other films that I took and just shoved onto my picture, just dried up and fell off and, and didn't quite make it into the finished product. But I learned a lot while I, just the process I learned. It was kind of like a vivisection. I did learn how films worked by making them. And I still don't know how they work, really, frankly. So one, we, right before this, we were looking, and they may pop up or not. Uh, collages are a space where, where Guy works. And it just struck me now that, in a way, looking at the films, I mean, and, and what would you call them? Speculative movie posters. Oh, posters right. Posters for films that have not yet been made. And I guess we'll see some of that in seance as well. Yeah. But in a way, that's kind of what the early Sorry. films are like, too, that they, they, they sort of reference this stuff, but they, it's expressionism, but the editing system is more Soviet. Yeah, yeah, I, I, never, I never tried to imitate an old movie. I just tried to use this, just, you know, there's other influences, too. Then my daughter, when she, was, when she was four or five, I have a granddaughter now that's five. I just love watching... I loved watching my daughter and I love watching my five-year-old granddaughter, Hazel, drawing. She'll just sit down and... I remember my, my daughter, Jillian, when she was five, just drew one of her favorite things, a shoe. And she just drew a shoe, she filled a page with it, a shoe shape. And then for some reason she put a man wearing the shoe, a stick man, wearing it the way Fred Flintstone used to wear a car, kind of like with his feet sticking out. So he had stick man, she had stick man feet coming out below and then put shoes on those feet. So a man wearing a shoe that was more about the size of an automobile. And then she glued a seashell in the top left-hand corner and put uh, some alphagetti in the top right corner and went, done. And the whole thing took four minutes, you know, or, or a minute maybe, I don't know. I can't remember how long it was. And I started crying because it was so beautiful. And uh, when my daughter and my granddaughter does the same thing, it's amazing sometimes how beautiful it is. It just almost seems like direct, something directly from the heart or the mind or a, a creative, it's, it seems like a pure creative impulse. It's, it's something else, I know, I'm romanticizing it. It's complicated what it is. Some people just say it's a bunch of bad art, but I love it, it's so beautiful. And you know, and there's some emotional truth in the disinhibition of children's drawings. Everyone knows the most famous example is a mother's head is way larger than her body because she's often seen leaning over to pick up, you know, whatever. And, but there's just emotional truth or there's just inexplicable mysteries in the decisions the kids make. And some of it's just a randomness, but I don't know. These kids have a high batting average. And I loved how quickly and joyously they worked. And then after becoming a father, I got a job as an extra on a movie set. I'm in a scene with Ellen Burstyn in some movie called Silence of the North. I was 23 years old. And I, I got up at 5 in the morning to go down to the set, and I got into makeup, and I sat in a green room for something like 16 hours, and then went home without appearing on the set. And then the next day, same thing all over again. I sat in the green room for about 8 hours, and then got onto the set for about 3 hours for what a, survives in the movie as a 5-second shot with Ellen Burstyn. And, um, and, um, and I, I couldn't tell who the director was. I couldn't tell who the actors were. I couldn't tell crew members from just people hanging around. And I just said to myself, and it was more of a reverie because I never expected to be a filmmaker. I just said, if I ever make a film, things are gonna, 
be more like the way I thought they'd be. You know, <laughs> like really yeah, fast yeah. and fun and you with a director with a megaphone going action and you know cut and you know print it and uh, you know stuff like that and that things would move as joyously and rapidly with quick decisions like my daughter and my granddaughter uh, make over a piece of paper with a crayon and uh, and so once I started making movies once I was pretty sure I just knew how to load the camera correctly I just tried to make them as as quickly as my daughter made that shoe drawing and I, I tried to keep things as joyous as, and fast-paced which is why fast-forwarding to my most recent uh, feature film that I made with my ex-student Evan Johnson um, we shot in public at the Centre Pompidou in Paris anyone coming into the Centre Pompidou the modern art museum could come and just watch us shoot and I felt that that would compel me because filmmaking is so boring to watch uh, that that would compel me to keep up the pace and maybe even embed a certain showmanship right into the filmmaking, mm. into the filmmaking at its shooting stage, not just at the presentation stage, but at the very shooting stage. So it would be fun. It didn't quite work that way because you quick, like, I've read in interviews with people who are on reality shows, they quickly forget the cameras are following them around everywhere, and I quickly <laughs> forgot that there were, you know, about this many people watching me at any time making a movie, and I would every now and then my pace would slack but it didn't I still made them quickly and sloppily and 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 I try to the, the haste actually has produced so many more accidents than should happen on a film set but uh, but my style is finally adapted to in, include uh, all accidents as happy accidents I've just decided that I can't plan anything and that um, uh, that the unexpected event is usually a far better idea than anything I could have thought of. So I move quickly partly to increase the chance of that, and, but I, I still do it. Is it the case, so brand upon the brain, I'm not sure if you've seen it or not, but is it true that that was a nine-day shoot? That was a nine-day shoot. It's a feature. Yeah, I've shot a, a feature, a like multiple locations, exterior, interior. Yeah, I shot this other feature in five days once, uh, Cowards Bend the Knee. That's a silent movie. Brand Upon the Brain is silent, too, but it, it was presented with a live orchestra and live Foley sound effects people. It was, th that was boredom insurance because they were really fascinating to watch, sound effects people, and, uh, and a singer and a narrator and stuff like that. A lot of Lou Reed narrated it once, fell asleep while narrating. Uh, <laughs> could not be awakened. He was narrating from a uh, loge above the orchestra and uh, could not be awakened for the last 30 minutes of the movie. But there's a big, the movie ends with a big gong going off and that woke him up. Yeah. And it, just to go back, so Lodge Door, and when I just sort of tally up the fabric <coughs> references, uh, Newt Hampson, um, Strindberg, von Stroheim, Bertoff, is this, or is your practice a way of exploring them or kind of figuring out what they're doing or are you inspired by them and then you go out and do something? How it's interesting that... you mentioned fan, fandom or fanboyness because I just, I came so late to film. I didn't really start watching it properly till I, you know, I have my childhood favorite films and stuff like that, but I, I, I didn't really come to film as an adult enthusiast until I was about 24. And uh, it was so new to me, but I was old enough that I could appreciate it both as someone coming brand new to something, like a child, but also as an adult, young adult. And, um, and so a lot of times I was just intoxicated by what some of these directors were up to, or in some cases musicians or 
soundscapists or something like that. I w certain things would just excite me so much, photographers or painters or something, that I just want, you know, and a young artist's first impulse is just to copy. And so um, I wanted to borrow ideas I, I, or repurpose them. It took me a while to figure out um, um, how, I, I don't know, how to just not, right away I came out of the gate making movies that were about something that mattered to me. So the, the, the I, and I found when you copy something, you know, when you, like I said, when the organ sometimes just dries up and falls off, you, it can't, you can't just um, grab something from someone else and expect it to work exactly the same way in a new context. I, I did. I thought it would, would do so, but it didn't. Um, so I felt guilty for the longest time, but then, um, um, and people always watch my movies and say they're full of references, but they can't, they never say references to what. Um, I, I think I just was stealing their, what I perceived to be their spirit. Um, and it was just something, I became intoxicated with all this discovery, which what's, what seemed like a limitless uh, world. And that was in the pre-internet days. It was really hard to get a hold of prints and things. A lot of times you'd imagine what a movie was like based on a single still image, uh, you know, in a library book or something, and it would be decades before you'd actually see the movie and be disappointed by it often. Uh, but the excitement from just emanating from a still image was enough to motivate me to make a movie about... Well, it's funny, because I was it. looking at some... About what the spirit I thought it had, you know. Some of the production notes... Um, you, you did around one of some DVD and Lida, page 42. Oh, Lida, yeah. Lida, page 42. It was interesting that those, it sounds as if those, indeed, those stills have been really generative. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, those were like references to books that I was, yeah. Right. Yeah, a lot of, t I also thought I was cramming, cramming things into my head so much. I, I don't know, I was just excited. A lot of you, I'm sure, have gone through exactly the same intoxicated early love affair with a subject where you just want to cram it all into your head and not all of it sticks and you want it to. So I felt like by writing down page numbers would probably help me learn things more or that I would go back to that page someday and I never did because I, you've seen the page number more than I have. I don't know. Um, so I don't know. So now I fear, I fear we're talking out of context so much here now that yeah. should I show something maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I do have my or most recent film. I'll explain this project, and then I'll show a few minutes from it. And then it's related to this internet project, Seances, that's going to be launched in April. Uh, I, I'm a obsessive, but I'm a dilettante, so I've never been a great scholar of film history, but I've just, since I'm obsessive, I've had an, a disordered way of just gobbling things up. So I have some areas where I really know a lot and other areas where I don't know anything. And a lot of people in situations just like this assume I'm a film scholar, but I'm not. I'm kind of this crazy, obsessive, with, um, uh, raging torrents of ignorance um, everywhere. But other, other areas where there's a frightening amount of uh, obsessive, nerdy detail memorized. And, uh, but anyway, uh, Somewhere, I always knew early, from early on in cinephilia that uh, there was such a thing as lost films. 
And it turns out that 80% of uh, the silent films made in America are lost, presumably forever in most cases. Um, that is, they were uh, never stored properly, uh, so they, they crumbled to dust or turned to a vinegary goo. Uh, some of them were lost in fires because the old nitrate stock was spontaneously given to spontaneous combustions that killed thousands of projectionists. Sometimes uh, the studios just cleared off last year's product off the shelves to make room for a new next year's product and would hold spectacular uh, staff bonfires with uh, the films, including some Academy Award-nominated films from the late 20s. Uh, and sometimes they're just dumped in the ocean. Sometimes, um, uh, I'll just tell a couple other anecdotes. There's uh, Carl Dreyer's uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. It was lost very soon, so soon after it was made. It was lost because a Danish man made a a film about a French saint and so French censors cut the film up until um, it was just a mere series of fragments and then there was a fire which destroyed the original negative back in Denmark and uh, and somehow all of a sudden there were no prints left so Dreyer was uh, I'm sure horrified but he famously tortured the star of that movie with so many takes that he, he just had all the outtakes and he went back and he took the second best take of um, Falconetti's performance in each case and just reassembled the movie and uh, released that. And that's the movie that until 1980 was um, cited every 10 years on the Sight and Sound, 10 best films of all time. But then Someone found in 1980, I think it was, in a janitor's closet in Oslo, in a, in a, um, in a mental hospital, uh, a print of the original. And, uh, and so that film immediately got released. And the other version, the alternate, that for 50 years had been considered one of the greatest movies of all time, it's just what's back in the janitor's closet or something? I don't know what, anyway. So the... Um, and the other one is one of my favorite films called The Unknown, a, a Todd Browning, Lon Chaney silent film made in 1927. It's a, re a really amazing movie. Uh, it's very common for orphaned films, films that are just partially complete to be put in a can with the label unknown. Well, uh, in the, I think in the 90s, someone in Paris found, um, uh, found The Unknown in a room full of cans, full of, uh, la all labeled unknown. Anyway, it turns out one of them was the unknown. And, um, but most, uh, there's other ways in which films have been lost. Um, uh, in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge uh, destroyed a lot of films um, and murdered their directors. Uh, the same sort of thing happened in the Soviet Union. Uh, the percentage of lost silent films, these aren't all, that's in the 70s in Cambodia. Uh, but films get lost in all sorts of different ways. I've even lost a film for a few years. Uh, I left its negative, I didn't have a print, and its negative was in a lab that couldn't find it. But then they found it after a few years. I was very proud, I've got a lost film. <laughs> but uh, I found it, um, or it was found. But, um, and I, I decided at one point that the only way Oh, and then there are, there's so many films made by people marginalized by the, you know, just socio-political hegemonies. Uh, Oscar Micheaux, the famous African-American independent filmmaker, had to fund his films by 
you know, selling Bibles door to door, working as a Pullman porter. And then when he showed them, he'd had to rent a hall. It's called four walling and show the films himself. When he died, his films just were scattered all over the place and many of them were lost. Most of his films are lost. Uh, there are many other African-American filmmakers. Uh, there is this guy, James Young Deere, who many people feel was African-American but who made films as a Native American because it was slightly less oppressive to make films as a Native American. Finally, just moved to England and made films as James Young Deere, a person. Um, but uh, many of his films are lost and they're really interesting. Um, I don't know, I became fascinated very early on with seeing these lost films and it really frustrated me that I couldn't see The Mountain Eagle, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's first feature because it's lost and it's probably not going to be found. I found eight stills from it and I know the story kind of from eyewitness accounts uh, before these witnesses died. They left descriptions of it. Um, and, and so I, I kind of glibly said to myself, the only way I'm ever going to be able to see these lost movies is if I make them myself. And um, every now and then I would get, just to put some food on the table, I would get a short film commission. You know, make a short film to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Toronto Film Festival, or make a short film to, you know, something like that, yeah. And I would secretly take a um, lost film plot and take the money to make a short film and I would just shoot the lost film plot in there and I would and I so by the time I started this project uh, that ended up being the Forbidden Room which is all based on lost film matter uh, I had already made a number of my own adaptations of lost films uh, but uh, secretly but this project made it overt it started off as an internet interactive project with the National Film Board called Seances there's this wonderful coincidence between the word seance, we're at one now by the way, because the word seance just means a seating, uh, but uh, we know the word as a paranormal seating. Uh, in France, if you go out to a movie and you look up on the internet what uh, movie's playing, you'll see the seance, uh, which in France means a seating in the dark to watch a movie. And we know it as a seating in the dark to watch some paranormal activity. I realize they're the same thing. Uh, in both cases, a bunch of people gather in a room, the lights go down, they see something that's not really there anymore, or not really there. In the case of the paranormal seance, some, some sort of charlatan is showing people a bunch of stuff they want to believe in it, or want to be enchanted by it or entertained by it. And it's the same thing with a director who shows a movie in the dark to people. They just want to believe in it while they're seeing it, or want to be enchanted by it, want to be taken up by it. And then when it's over, the lights go up, and everybody, both at the paranormal and at the film seances, they just discuss among themselves how enchanted, how taken with it they were. It's really the same thing. And in both cases, it's something created by a charlatan. And <laughs> um, so that was, I just decided that I would, I started to consider these lost movies um, as sad spirits, unable, doomed to wander the landscape, you know, just consigned to some sort of oblivion. Doomed to wander the landscape, landscape of film history, unable to project themselves for those who might want to see them. And so I decided to hold seances in public spaces at the Centre Pompidou every day at noon, a very unseancey hour. Uh, we would invite, I would put my actors in a trance. It's very easy to put actors in a trance. They put themselves in trances half the time. Uh, and I would invite uh, the spirit of a certain lost movie that day to come down and possess them and compel them to act out the long-forgotten plots of a, 
of a lost film, and then I, as a spirit photographer, would just film them going about their uh, trancey uh, business for the day. We just did one lost movie adaptation a day in this fashion and, and ended up editing it. By the end of the day, we'd have maybe a 15 to 20 minute long short movie uh, out of the process. So I did about 36 of these movies in Montreal and Paris. And I was supposed to shoot about 48 more days in Winnipeg. That would have been 48 more movies. Three weeks at Sao Paulo at a Biennale and, uh, and five weeks at MoMA, but they all fell through because it's really hard to finance um, new media when the new media is essentially filmmaking. Filmmaking is expensive and the new media grants are smaller. And so the Canadian government actually forced me to make a feature. They said, we will give you the money we discussed earlier, but we've decided we can't bend our rules. You have to actually make a feature film out of all these things you shot. And so I'm, Evan and I made a feature film out of a, a bunch of short films that were never meant to be together. They were meant to be loaded up into the seances website, the interactive website, where they would be fragmented and, and would come at you from the great beyond as fragmented, tortured, lost film spirits in, constantly interrupting each other in dialogue with each other to form a sort of a non sequitur addled collision of of narrative which sometimes would be uh, would form a non sequitur chain that pleasingly and by coincidence uh, was del almost delightful to watch and might be really delightful sometimes and might be really boring and very prone to being aborted many times that was the idea of the website but all of a sudden we had to make a feature and it has a very strange structure it just has a story and then all of a sudden an interruption and within that story there's a say a flashback uh, to, a next, to another story and then inside that story someone has a dream and <laughs> they dream the next lost movie and then someone gets a letter and then the letter is another <laughs> lost movie and then within that is a, you know, a telegram or a phone call or um, I don't know, there's so many different ways of embedding a narrative within a narrative within a narrative and we structured this, emboldened by the extremely eccentric French writer Raymond Roussel, whose uh, long poem, The New Impressions of Africa, and whose short story, Documents to Serve as an Outline, uses exactly the same structure of, a, of nested narratives, Russian doll style. And so it's, it's a structure that really doesn't give any indication to the viewer of the feature film that the movie intends to end ever. And uh, so it, even though the movie's two hours long, it, it feels like it just might be eight or nine <laughs> hours long. So, but whatever, I'm, I'm proud of the way some of it happens. The directors weren't, I mean, the, uh, the actors weren't really directed that much. I found myself um, just trying to keep things moving all the time. And uh, the only direction I remember giving them to them was the word again. You know, um, maybe smaller it, it, it doesn't seem like it when you when you watch it but i could i could show you a, please, please, yeah. i could show you a, a fragment of it it's my it's my child at home um you know i'm going to i know what i can do in the meantime i've got to While I just crack open the Blu-ray for it, uh, I'll just put on the preview trailer for the Seance's website.
It's two minutes long. No, I'm good, thanks. actually feared in the arrogance you sometimes feel at the beginning of a project, I feared that I would be creating like new internet addiction problems among visitors to my site that the people wouldn't be able to get off of it and I don't know, I can't believe <laughs> um, I'm a little bit unprepared here, I have to just scan my um, or drop my movie from my hard drive. The, you may have noticed that there's a lot of um, uh, blobbiness in the imagery. It's because um, that's the way, uh, let me just make sure I have the right cut here. Related to ectoplasm? Yeah, the, um, if you've ever seen really aged film, you know when it's, when it's drying up and, and it's getting mildewed and it's buckling. If you actually, uh, the, ar the artist Bill Morrison usually prints, uh, digitally prints one frame at a time because you can never run those really old things through a projector. They just pul they pulverize themselves or turn to powder or, or burst into flames or something. But um, once they're set into motion, they start to buckle and, and bloom and oxidize and then com com uh, compress themselves again. And, and the whole thing sort of reminded me of the way ectoplasm might look if you were ever able to see any of those spiritism photographs from the 1920s or 30s as movies because everyone is always disgorging some like some cheesecloth with honey on it or something out of their nostrils or out of their mouths or out of any orifice um, or um, or some sort of cotton batten with a daguerreotype in it or something and it always sort of struck me that if these things moved they would they would move like that and 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 I thought, what a nice coincidence, considering the two seances, the paranormal one and the, the, the movie, the cinema one, that, that, that's, that film emulsion itself is an ectoplasm. Because obviously, once someone is photographed, even, this same goes for digital photography, but ever since uh, the camera was invented, people have been speaking about film being a haunted medium. 
as soon as you take a photograph of somebody at age, that's me, age 60 and 10 days, um, um, I'm, the photograph is of a person for the next 10 years of someone who's age 60 and 10 days, but I keep aging. And then the photograph ages in a different way. And so it can be argued the photograph is of a ghost. You know, it's of something that's no longer there. And then after the subject is dead, it's, liter it's more literally a, a ghostly image. And then if you start thinking of ghosts, uh, emotional ghosts, the kind we all have, as things you miss, you know, Hamlet's ghost is a father, the fatherly presence that uh, strongly, whose absence is finally missed as an absence. Um, I don't know, when I started making movies after my father died because I had these ghostly visits from him in dreams nightly, which felt really good to see him again, but he was just, he only returned in his dreams just to abandon me again and again and again every night. That was the purpose of those dreams, it seemed. And it just seems to me that uh, absence and memory and the ghostliness of film itself is almost subject matter enough, or it's an emotional impetus enough to make films. And so when you're making f your own adaptations of lost films, you're just dealing directly with ghostly matter. So it, it seemed like the it seemed like the right, it seemed like all the metaphors lined up nicely for the themes that concern me. Now, I can just, I think I can just open this up. What I might do is take us to a place, because we only have so much time. Um, what's really strangely pleasant about all these, all these stories, there's 17 different lost movies, uh, fragments, fragments of 17 different lost movie adaptations in The Forbidden Room. Uh, nested within each other, there's, uh, in the first act, there's uh, six stories nested within each other. Uh, it starts with uh, John Ashbery, the American poet, wrote a script for me for The Lost, How to Take a Bath, a Dwayne Esper sexploitation picture from 1937, which compared how um, a single woman and a married woman might bathe. Um, it's lost. Um, and then... And then uh, within that story is, a law, is uh, The Forbidden Room, a lost Alan Dwan picture, a submarine movie. And within that is, um, anyway, you go with, within that is Dalagang Bukid, a, a lost a Filipino vampire movie. And then within that, you know, and, and so forth. And then there's a, a Greek film with the uh, very 1931 insensitive uh, title, The Fist of a Cripple, um, uh, within that. And then, and then you have to work your way back out from the stories. And it's very pleasing to remember after you've been lost, after you've gone down the rabbit hole for a while, it's very pleasing to come out all the time. You find that the pleasure is in coming out in the case of watching this movie or in the pleasure of reading Raymond Roussel. And so I'll bring you to a point where you come out, but this will be out of context for you, where you come out of a number of movies. I can't remember the exact place where it happens, so I'll just mute this. And try to, and I'll find it pretty quickly. Um, oh, it's in the middle. Oh, by the way, that was um, that's my adaptation of Duryaniskov, the lost Murnau version of uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Um, I could give you a little tour. Of, this is um, this is the lost Mikio Neruza, Strength of a Mustache. Uh, there is a um, there's a, a tendency in Japanese cinema 
in the earlier part of the 20s among certain male directors to deal with father shame, the shame of a, of a father in the, in the eyes of a son. And this is about a man whose mustache just doesn't live up to um, his son's expectations. But um, let's see. What's the Forbidden Room? The Forbidden Room is a lost submarine picture, or at least the way it's come out of the confused cinematic afterlife void. I think it was actually a, um, a Western in, the <laughs> in its first incarnation. Um, this Mathieu Amorique movie is um, an Australia, lost uh, Australian movie called Blue Mountains uh, Mystery, a lost uh, whodunit. Um, this one is set in an elevator. It's an apartment that doesn't have an elevator, it is an elevator. Um, it's just a, uh, that's, this is maybe the most lost movie of all. It's uh, The Red Wolves, um, a movie that I can find no record of. It's referred to in the diaries of Joseph Roth, the, um, uh, the writer who, in his, in the 1920s in Paris, went to see a movie called The Red Wolves, describes it extensively, and then there's no re record of it anywhere. So I just decided to take his description of it and reshoot it. Um, Okay, let's see. I've got a. That's a lost Quebecois all boy scout movie. Uh, let's see. There's a guy, Monsignor Tessier, who made about 60 movies all starring boy scouts. I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> oh, we'll watch a bit of that actually, because this little clip here. That's right. We're starting out here with Saint Devil Woman, which is um, a lost movie made in New York at the Tannhauser Company, but starring Florence Labadie, who's a Quebecois actress, apparently. Uh, at least I said she was, because I, I had to access Quebec uh, funding, uh, and they said that if I <laughs> and they, they said they could have that I could have money if I supplied three lost Quebecois films. And um, so I made the, the Boy Scout movie and, the, and this one. Anyway, um, we could just watch a bit of it. Uh, you'll see what I mean about the performances not being directed. They're un unbelievably uninhibited. Um, let me just find the right, the right spot to begin. I think this is about it here. This is going in and then coming out of a few movies. So why don't we just try watching? <laughs> And await what next I will reveal to the heart as the heart. No, thanks. Pleasant to play euphoric surprise of your young, young. Never asked him to do that. I have no idea why I did that. I present you your
amnesia, an illness that leaves your memory unaffected, but which nevertheless affects the memories of your friends and families. find yourselves totally forgotten when you return home. It is called Pan-Fallopian Neglect Amnesia. There is little hope for it here. That's, I don't know if you can tell, but that's, that was a number of stories nested within each other, and now we're out to a lost Chinese film called Women's Skeletons. A man, a surgeon, jealous of his surgeon brother, is re-breaking and resetting the bones of a girl he really likes. Um, the previous story, Saint Devil Woman, all took place inside the x-ray of a broken pelvis. And before that, um, a story took place inside a, um, well, a train compartment and inside a urine stain and then inside a Boy Scout movie inside the urine stain is just a memory of a mother, Charlotte Rampling, who's kind of this blobby mother throughout. Anyway, uh, we can pause that for now. All this was stuff I put, had to put together um, to fund the feature. Uh, but, um, I mean, fund the uh, website, seances. Thank you. Um, so I took the money to make a feature and made a feature out of foot, <laughs> but then siphoned most of it into the, the website. So, I don't know, which is where, which is why we wanted to make it. We scripted each movie individually, and then when we had to piece them together, it really helped to have a character in common. For instance, there's a little girl that plays the inner child, in, in one story, but she also happened to be in the next story. So often there would be a character in common. That helped. But sometimes you just had to abandon. You just had no choice, but had to just make, uh, say, there's a volcano movie. Uh, you know, when you have a volcano in a movie, it's got to erupt, you know. And so, but we had a volcano that just conveniently had a dream. Uh, I guess enough things had been thrown into it as sacrifices. Um, that it had some sort of indigestion and had a pizza-like uh, nightmare, and, and that was one of a series of lost movies and things like that. Anyway, the uh, combinations and recombinations are much more fragile on the internet. We decided to treat the internet like a very almost soap bubble, fragile um, film on which to project these images. And I can, I just, 
receive today. It's it's not quite ready yet, but I could start generating what the website looks like. I literally have not watched more just to make sure it wor the first few seconds work. I just tried holding a seance. I, I held the very first seance we held and it was just a, a prototype. Um, it has a random title generator in it and uh, with some metadata that produces words associated with elements that are present in each lost film. But these lost films, and there were supposed to be hundreds of them, but now there's only 36, alas. They're swimming around in some sort of afterlife. And you, the idea is you grab, you make a grab at the afterlife and, and make contact. And, and whatever you grab, the words start randomly uh, collecting around your grab and to form a new title. The first one that we uh, tried um, uh, turned out to be Wise Trumpets of the Milky Midnight, uh, a movie that never existed until we grabbed it. And um, uh, I watched the movie. It was good in places and dull, mostly. And uh, then it was over. You can't uh, fast forward it or pause it. And uh, it ended. And then as soon as it's ended, the, the program destroys that combination of elements so it can never be seen again. And so it's a website, an interactive, that um, creates out of lost matter a new movie and then destroys that movie, loses it again. And so um, the idea is that if you actually have a, a kind of a special relationship with a movie, tough, you can't see it again. And there's a kind of a, hopefully, a sense of loss. Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, it's a big deal, it's lost. You know, I realize that, but um, the idea is to, to hope, and, and we tried to increase the odds of it being, but I honestly have no idea if this will be any good. This will be a first time for me. I've seen the, I shot personally, all the stuff that makes up the movies, but the actual combination of things is brand new. And this isn't what it's supposed to look like exactly, but we could just try one. Um, I guess I go into, um, I think. Enter presentation mode. There's a bunch of, you can see over here, there's something intolerable commotions. That might be the title. This still needs some work. I'm good, let's just try it. Uh, you grab this thing. Some words, some different titles. Oh yeah, different titles are happening. Vomiting, mountains of fire, uh, the running time. Let's see, I'm gonna, oops, there we go. Burning in the Trumpet Island. Well, not the greatest title. I won't make you watch the whole 14 minutes. We'll abort, but watch for a couple minutes. We perversely have really long intertitles occasionally. The cinema afterlife is supposed to be race and gender blind as well. So. 
but I don't know about this one. I, f I forgot to warn you, sometimes the internet just interrupts it. <laughs> well, as luck would have it, you get another very long intertitle here. I'm not controlling this thing, I swear. That's a temp voice.
Now there's one of those interruptions again. Every now and then YouTube just pushes through. I'm going to I'm going to abort this one in a minute, but I'll just This this one isn't working, but anyway, I'm full of excuses. So, like I said, I haven't seen this yet, and it's, we're still desperately uh, massaging this uh, <laughs> interactive into shape for its April launch at the Tribeca Film Festival. This one still has plenty of problems that I won't bother going into, but the stories aren't nesting themselves in interesting ways for me here, but I'm prepared for many of them to fail anyway, even when it's working at its best, but I think... But anyway, uh, it was fun to kind of do this live on the fly. This is, occasionally the movie just stops to have a, some sort of ectoplasmic bonfire for you to watch for a few moments. And like I said, occasionally um, other parts of the internet do interrupt. You don't have much control over that. Uh, hopefully it's nothing really horrible. We've got it it's so that um, pornography won't um, come in. Uh, but um, other other parts you can catch you know highlights of the game maybe or whatever um, yeah anyway I'll, I'll abort this for now you get the idea uh, I, or maybe you don't maybe there's no way to get the idea for all I know uh, but anyway so I don't even know how to get out of this frankly I've got to go up into yeah, view into presentation mode Okay. I want to make sure you guys have a chance to ask any questions or whatever that you have. Um, yeah. It's, geez, it's 6.17. I'm so sorry about this. Uh, but anyway. Um, World premiere almost. Yeah, well, it was definitely the first time anyone outside of my inner circle has seen any of this. I, I was seeing that for the first time. It, it wasn't working the way I'd hoped, but that's okay. Um, it's, that's not, deadline is still... A month away. <laughs> okay. So, folks have uh, any questions or whatever? That was the you, least structured to talk ever. I, like, I'm sorry about that. I just, just like, might as well. Have it. Okay. But thank you. Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Good eye. Thank you. Yeah, you you saw the live version. Yeah, the uh, the foley artists who are used to working in very, in just in basements without anyone looking at them sort of got the showbiz bug and and tried to make more visual things foley artists spend their entire lives looking at the world and trying to figure out how to make a sound that sounds like another sound they kind of make it a point of pride that if if they're recording this bottle hitting the table that they 
use something else, <laughs> you know. So for, yeah, for biting a young boy's abdomen or something, they used celery and, the, and they had a special light on the celery and it looked really nice and green and the Foley artists, you know, polished their teeth and <laughs> before. And um, for that, I think it actually was sticks breaking. And then there were some uh, moans from the uh, subject of the breakage, which we never recorded. We didn't think to record that on the day. So those were just stolen from uh, a soft fourth form movie. Yeah. You gotta, you know, it's kind of fun just scavenging uh, for sound effects. Yes? Hey, so, um, so I'm thinking about your, your, the movies that I've seen of yours, and um, in particular, uh, The Sleepy, Dreamy, My Winnipeg, and also the, the Saddest Music. Right. And, um, you know, having never gotten to speak to you, you know, I've always wondered, like, where does that dreamy quality come from? And now, with what some of the clips that we watch is also kind of claustrophobic. Like, is it something yeah. that, what is that about for you? The claustrophobia, I admit I'm more comfortable when I'm holding the camera, if I'm just in a corner of a small set, kind of cozy and womb-like. For the saddest music in the world, I managed to get a lot of money. And I, I told my producer, geez, I'm tired of trying to design my own movies. I want a real production designer to build big sets and beautiful things because I'm tired of shooting in these tiny little things. And so I had really big sets built. And then I just went off into one corner of them and shot. <laughs> and they don't show up in the movie. And uh, <clears throat> that's when I realized that's what I, I just like things. I think it just goes back to my earliest days when I just unplugged all the lights but one and ended up with a womb. It reminded me of children's book illustrations, you know, of time, a sleepy time for the baby animals. And they would show a squirrel inside a hollow log sleeping. And it would be surrounded by just a kind of a black halo that, you know, held everything in. And I was, I didn't have much confidence in my eye to balance a brightly lit flame, a frame uh, with all the elements competing with each other. I just thought maybe just have a central figure that graded off into blackness and closed in. So I still, I still kind of fall back on that now and then. So even when I do shout, shoot outdoors now and then, or if I do have shots that are, have components that are the great outdoors, they're usually carefully composited in post. I shoot some outdoor stuff and then have it composited later. And I use collaborators and we sort of decide on how it best looks. But on the fly, I like to shoot on the, on the fly and quickly. I don't trust my eye with, um, I just don't know how to balance things out, especially in color now, where, where something that's red but inconsequential, say, is just off to the, off in the corner of the frame, and you're just ignoring it. But all of a sudden, you in color, it could be as significant as the red in Nicholas Riggs' "Don't Look Now," where the color red means everything in the movie or something. And I just scared of extraneous colors taking on undue weight. And so I think I like just claustrophobic things as a way of framing out everything, Vignette. but the principal yeah. things. It's it's actually just a, it is a weakness. But I, I tend to think of it as um, cozy rather than claustrophobic. I really do have claustrophobia nightmares, and I don't like being really confined, but I like being cozy. Mm -hmm. you know, so I just stop moving in when it's cozy, and I don't go any closer. It's probably just a bad habit.
Anything else? Yes. Um, I just have a question about the Seance project. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what what's uh, what's going on with YouTube. Oh right. Is that is that what what's your thought about YouTube or what? What's, well, what's it doing? I wanted. I wanted, um, and that still has some kinks to be worked out. Um, I just wanted, first of all, with the destruction, of, there's the sense that everything is forever on the yeah. internet now. And so I wanted these things destroyed as quickly as they were made. Now that one is no loss. I was happy to record it <laughs> and just get on with talking to you guys. Uh, but every now and then, the idea is they, and we're supposed to stack the deck so that they work better together and more often than not um, for people who are inclined to like this sort of thing. Um, I wanted to restore a sense of loss to the internet, but I also wanted to cr create a sense that the, um, back in the old analog days when I used to listen, before I became a film nerd, I was uh, an adolescent baseball fan, but up in Canada we didn't have our own radio, we didn't have our own baseball team, so I had to listen on distant AM radio. And the world seemed so vast, the AM radio world, and you'd find the sweet spot just between two stations that occasionally when the AM radio waves were being kind would sort of part like an AM radio curtain of static and you could hear a game for a little while and hear the first few pitches of an at-bat and then the curtains would close with a scratchy and just enshroud everything in scratchiness and it would be gone again and then it would come again and, and it just, I, I wanted, I always wanted the internet to be more Fragile, yeah, more like AM radio, basically. But, I, but that, that AM radio world was haunting to me. I felt like, even in the winter when I missed baseball, that if I tuned into that same station, you would still get the same announcers and the same commercials, and it just felt like the, the game was just a second away, but it never came because, of course, it was winter. Uh, but it was kind of like visiting a cemetery or like having a dream of a dead relative or something. You always felt like it was just a moment away or something. So I just wanted to create a fragility to the internet that isn't there. Sure, we all go to sites that aren't available for some reason or you have to reboot your computer or something, but I, I wanted it to be, to be more fragile and to come and go and, and the whole thing to be, <clears throat> for a while we were talking about the seances being available only on, on tablet and that if you held the tablet at a certain angle, a different story would, would happen. And you'd have to, or if you touched it, a different story would push through where your finger was, that sort of thing, just to create a fragility. So you'd have to hold still if you're actually interested in seeing something. So there's all sorts of different, it's not really interactive, except for the binary, you turn it on and you watch it. But, um, but there's, a little bit of interactivity at the beginning where you can, when you're grabbing things, you can sort of pay attention to the words. And it's supposed to, it's not finished yet, it's supposed to suggest genres that you're getting. You know, um, different, and there's a thousand different genres and subgenres. So there's, there's a little bit of interactivity in the selection process and it's really hard to grab out of this sea of words what you're going to see. And then, and then, then just a sense of fragility in relation to clips that are available on, online that would be more integrated than it was just there. And it should have a sound, an accompanying sound effect as well. So I'm really hoping that 
All of them are interrupted by cat videos, personally. Yes. <laughs> Is, is it correct to say that we're seeing and hearing something like dissolves and superimpositions, and that that has something to do with the, the ghostly effect that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I'm kind of, I get high off of dissolves and double exposures and uh, both audio and, and visual. The, um, the, the music is all made by the production designer Galen Johnson and me and, and, and my editor, but it just, I only know how to use this primitive um, uh, down, free download uh, audacity that where you can just take sounds and, and stretch them, slow them, change the pitch, reverse them, or whatever. And I just take public domain music and, and just start creating new soundscapes out of them. And, and so being public domain is almost a form of being dead or something, or free or something. It just feels like I'm just working in lost matter there half the time and creating, re, just repurposing things um, just to create and through dissolves and layering and, and just doing the audio equivalent of the, of the visuals just to try to, to, try to create an, ecto, an audio ectoplasm. Pardon me? When you talk about compositing, is that, is that Some of that compositing is just based, the kind of compositing that uh, takes place in, in big budget special, special effects action movies in the Marvel comics universe, just where you take, um, you know, like in The Revenant, when Leo DiCaprio is supposedly like swimming down a, um, an icy stream, but he's actually in a heated swimming pool in LA, and there's like, you know, like a snowy mountain composited over top of it, stuff like that, but just but low budget versions of it. You know? <laughs> Compositing a postcard into you know, something, or a miniature, or you know, a science fair volcano, or you know, that sort of thing. It's just try to keep it, it's try to get a lot of analog onto the digital, and then digital onto the analog, and then just try to, in the spirit, the same spirit as my, is it, as if my five-year-old granddaughter was messing with crayons and a computer, you know, and, and just totally happy to get a bunch of digital artifacts all over the, the Alphagetti, you know, just, just try to make the movie in that spirit. If that answered your question, I hope I didn't Kissinger you just now or something. <laughs> When we were, we talked a few days ago on the phone, and um, I started down the alphabet. Uh, amnesia, which shows up in a lot of these uh, projects. Amputation, I saw one mentioned here. Autobiography, and Brand Upon the Brain, for example, described in your commentary as really autobiographical. So I said, wow, like that's really interesting. And you had a great response in terms of how autobiography becomes a, is, is generative. And it was not things like the story so much as moments. And, yeah, I can't remember, and I try never to give the same answer twice Just anyway. Like, uh, yeah. But uh, and uh, also, I um, I don't have a good enough memory to give the same answer. But I, I long ago promised. Well, I will mention this. Maybe this is what I said. I don't know. Um, I loved David Lynch when he first started making films. I already told you I loved um, Eraserhead, and uh, I loved Blue Velvet, and then I sort of fell out of love with him for a while. But I'm a big fan. And, um, and so, like any fanboy, I started watching and reading every interview possible, and I was really excited by the great interviews he gave until I began to really recognize he gave the same answers over and over again. And I sort of told myself, if I ever become a filmmaker, I will never give the same answer twice <laughs> to a question. 
Well, I, I did become a filmmaker and I was lucky enough to do Q&As after every screening. And, I, and you get asked frequently the same questions. And, uh, and so I thought, here's my chance. I'll give a different answer each time. But I quickly ran out of the truth. And, uh, and so I started to lie. Uh, just on principle, I have to keep giving a different answer. So I'd lie like crazy. And then I ran out of like, imagination. And I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't make up stuff fast enough. And uh, luckily enough, I was in demand enough that I had to lie a lot. And then I started doing lie-truth hybrids in every possible permutation. And then it, fi it finally dawned on me after decades of lying that, that I've been telling lies mostly, you know, mostly, about 99% of my answers are lies, that, um, that the, the, the lies you curate, like, you, you know, you're sitting up there, you've got a second, right? And you go, uh, I can tell him I, I, had a, I once had an amputation, uh, but uh, it's grown back now or something. No, that's, that's implausible. Uh, I won't tell that one. I, uh, I can say uh, I just like to stick around the letter A and the amputation just came up. You know, I don't know. And then you finally just say why uh, you used an amputation now a couple of times in your movie career. And, and, but, and it's a lie. But you've chosen that lie. And, that the, and after a while, the, the curation of lies becomes a portrait of you that's just as true as if you'd just been telling the truth the whole time. So I just wasted all that effort lying when, in fact, I, was, I basically was just revealing as much about myself by the lies I curated um, as if I'd just spilled the beans. Uh, so I don't know if that's saying anything. But anyway. Uh, there are a lot of autobiographical elements in the stories, like there are for any fiction writer, I'm sure, because you, you come up with an idea and you've got to run it past yourself. You have to, you know, what would I do in this situation? How would I feel? Or if I were that person, how would I feel? It's always got to go through yourself anyway. And so I mentioned that I wandered in the desert for a long time. At first I started to make movies that sort of mattered to me, but I didn't realize they mattered to me as autobiography. I thought they were just stories. And then for a few years, I was just trying to make stories that were entertaining, but they didn't matter to me. And then finally, I just, um, I decided to, to use as a structure for a movie, it turned out to be my movie, Cowards Bend the Knee, uh, Euripides Electra. I thought, this story's been around for 2,500 years. I'm gonna read it, it must be good. Maybe it's got a good, solid structure. And I read um, Euripides' Electra, and I realized that I'd just finished um, a, relation, a brief relationship in which I had seen someone who was Electra, and, um, and that I was somehow her brother, not her boyfriend. I was Arrestes and that she had real anger issues with her mother and her stepfather. And you know, that's a very, it's a very durable story. And so I took the story and I started to, um, I saw myself in it so much uh, that I finally just did one thing odd. I just made the protagonist, the arrested. I told, I retold the story from Electra's brother's point of view. And I just made him uh, Electra's boyfriend instead. And then I just changed his name from Arrestes to Guy Madden. And all of a sudden, um, I knew what kind of person he was. He was kind of scared. 
and cowardly and would do the wrong thing if pushed hard enough and then just spend a lot of time trying to make up for it. And um, I, um, so the story, and then I could take family members and just recruit them, dead ones and living ones, and bring them into the story as Clytemnestra and Agamemnon and Aegisthus, and, and uh, uh, I don't even know how to say their names, but, um, and give them characteristics that I knew from living with these people for years. And then I could give them the lives. I could uh, lie about them, the way I lied in so many Q&As. I could make my um, virginal and beloved Aunt Lil, um, Clytemnestra, the most vile and foul, sexualized mother possible. I could give my aunt, who is dead, the gift of this life she never lived. And I don't know, I could just reappropriate uh, re ancient from ancient texts characteristics and merge them with real life people I loved and, um, and make a story that meant a lot to me because all of a sudden the main characters were all people I loved, not just kind of new. You know? And uh, they were just rearranged as if I was looking at my family and all the people I loved through the um, reflections of a shattered mirror, you know, and you'd have to piece together the mirror to get a good look at them and they'd be disfigured slightly, but they meant a lot to me. And all of a sudden I was invested in movie making again and really excited about it and the idea of paying tribute to dead loved ones by giving them sometimes even heinous movie roles to play and um, or telling people I love them uh, but much too late but at least in a movie and um, it was a way of really caring about the movies and it really fired me up and I made a lot of movies in a hurry and then I mean you know it must have seemed narcissistic or something and so I've removed my name from characters again after a while, but, uh, but it was a way of, to re, it was way into the movies um, to get fired up. It was a very primitive way in again, but it got me, got me, got me going. So uh, the movies, the two parts of that answer have something to do with each other. There's a lot of lies in my Q&As and in my movies, but I think they add up to a kind of an absolute value. The way negative seven is just seven somethings uh, in absolute value terms. Um, all those lies about my family and about me are still the same thing in absolute value terms. They're emotional absolute values that are very important to me. Question about critics. Oh, there's a question about critics. So a lot of what I love, I love a lot about your work, but I really appreciate the commentaries that you've uh, provided on some, on some DVDs. It gives a great way to alternate reading of the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the film. How about critics? So you're, you lie a lot, you have these... these uh, I sound horrible. No, yeah. I mean, you, let's say you create a lot. You, you create yeah. a lot. No, I lie. You generate a lot with these tracks, and then critics come along and they start to try to put you in boxes or take you apart. Or how, what's that relationship like for you? Good one. I, I've, been really, I've been really lucky, and I should add that I mix with a lot of lies. In situations like this, I, I try to be ridiculously honest, but then I just can't resist lying a little bit. <laughs> um, I've been really lucky with critics because I haven't been made rich by box office. I've been able to make a living for a certain number of consecutive years on filmmaking alone, and then there's periods where for bad luck or bad producers or whatever, I don't get my director's fees and I have to go 
you know, I have to go teach. Luckily enough, I've been making film long enough that I can actually get a teaching job. I teach at Harvard, even though I only have a, a Bachelor of Arts. You know, so I teach filmmaking. It's not the worst job in the world. It's great. Uh, so, uh, but luckily, I have a kind of a, so I, I used to let it get me down that, that um, whenever the films weren't coming around fast enough, I couldn't fund them fast enough. But I, I learned an odd thing that, that the longer you were inactive, as long as you weren't inactive forever, your films seemed to get better in people's memories. Or people who hadn't seen them seemed to have heard your name or something. It really helped. I got a, a couple of films on Criterion Collection. So even people who haven't seen the films have had to either click past them on the website or flip past them in the DVD store. And your name kind of, a, your name kind of just acquires a kind of a prestige. And um, I remember going to the Toronto Film Festival after it had been something like eight years since I'd made a film I was proud of. And I was really ashamed and lying low. But a, a lot of people recognized me and said nicer things about my old films than they said when they were just made. And um, the films had somehow gotten better for these people. I don't know how. Just so <clears throat> some of it because a few critics, and I've been very lucky that Jonathan Rosenbaum, say, who's in his 70s now, uh, but wrote regularly and is still read a lot online, and Jay Hoberman and John Powers at Vogue and, and some other people. And now I've, I've, I seem to be, well, my recent work has done okay in Cinemascope magazine, which is my favorite film uh, magazine. Um, I, I get written about. It's nice. Uh, so if, if box office hasn't been great, there's some kind of digital trail. Um, I'm grateful to the critics. I, I suppose a populist who gets um, slagged by the critics uh, hates the critics, uh, but he's living in a mansion. <laughs> uh, my most recent film that I made with Evan and my production designer Galen, it's directed by three people. It's just made. It's just made. We don't call it directed by. It's called Bring Me the Head of Tim Horton. It's a making of documentary of a um, of a movie called Hyena Road, which is made by this guy Paul Gross in Canada who calls himself Canada's populist. I don't know if there's such a thing as a populist in Canada because no one really watches Canadian films, especially Canadians. And, uh, but anyway, he made a Canadian war film in, in, uh, set in Afghanistan. He made it in Jordan. And, and Galen and Evan and I went there and we shot for a weekend and then just repurposed it as a cine essay. It was really fun. Um, to work in the cine essay format uh, that has nothing to do with old-timey movies, nothing to do with being haunted by cinema's ghosts or anything. It's nice to leave all that, that stuff behind. One thing I wanted to mention about autobiography is I tend to make films about things I've been obsessed with, various elements of my autobiography, um, you know, the death of my father, uh, something to do with my mother or something. Um, uh, being an a, a really horny adolescent, uh, being, you know, things like that. You'd, and, but you take these honest elements and you c turn them into a draft of a script, into a script, into uh, roles to be cast, into casting sessions, into a shooting schedule, into costumes to be made, into, into the actual shooting and direction, into the editing, into the sound mix, into the film festival circuit, into the Q&As. And you're so sick of what was once 
this beloved memory, this fragile memory, I, uh, this movie I made, Keyhole, it didn't really work at all. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. It was about my childhood home that I dreamt of almost every night since moving out of it in the 80s. And um, it was haunted. I, I've used up. Like, you just get so, it's the therapy of making a film about something that matters to you. It is therapy. It's, it's inadvertently therapy. You just make yourself sick of this thing. <laughs> sick of talking about it. Sick of thinking about it. You don't dream about it anymore. You're cured. So I think it's time. It's time for you to make these cine essays and start thinking about the present and the future. <laughs> because I finally cured myself of my, mostly. Not, no one's cured themselves of their past until they're dead. But um, I've, I've, really dealt, I've really fixed myself up a lot, very slowly. But I'm, <laughs> I'm 60, for crying out loud. But I've, I think I've finally, finally done it. It's not a therapy I can recommend to everyone. It, you, know, you, won't, you, know, you won't have much job security. <laughs> but uh, um, I have used autobiography to cure myself somehow, inadvertently. And share the fruits with the rest of us. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, thanks. <laughs> Yeah. Thinking about that collaboration process, and like here, there might be there's a lot of emphasis on collaboration. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm like literally, I'm really curious. Are you making storyboards? Because like, are you? How do you project your vision? Well, first of all, yeah, I, I used to do all my editing. The last movie I edited all by myself was uh, this short movie called Heart of the World in the year 2000. So for this entire century, basically, I've been, I've, I started working with an editor once. I started with digital editing. I just wasn't as fast. And I'm, luckily, I, the first guy I worked with was someone who saw eye to eye with me and who edited just like I would, except better. And so he, and he's nocturnal, so he edits at night while I'm sleeping. And, and often in the morning when I wake up, there's a, a Dropbox with a cut, and I look at it and I give him notes. But a lot of times, if he's on a, on a hot streak that pleases me, I just say, keep it coming. And, uh, and occasionally I'll ask him to rework something, but it's, but it's collaborative, but we don't even see each other, even though he just lives a few blocks away from me. Um, if we run into each other, we almost run away from each other. <laughs> so it's, but it's, I'm, I've, yeah, filmmaking's really collaborative. When I started out, I was working alone, even doing the editing. I was about as lone as could be without actually acting in the movies, too. But I was really glad to have an editor now that I, that's in sync with me because now I can time my energy to run out on the last day of shooting. And I can, while I'm resting, the movie is still moving forward and assembling itself. Um, when a director just gets a lot of found footage uh, shot by someone else and turns it into a documentary, that editor's called a director. And, um, and so um, an editor is a, every bit as much a filmmaker as I am. And I've offered John, his name's John Gerdebeck, a chance to be my co-director, like Evan is now. And uh, he's actually just said, uh, no thanks, I'd rather be paid. Because um, <laughs> directors tend to have their um, salaries deferred. But I, whenever I have the chance, I do credit him with being a major collaborator. But it's the same thing with uh, screenwriting or sometimes 
sound designers or whatever, you know, it's just so collaborative that there's no one spot and it varies from picture to picture. I've often wondered what, and I have no inside information on Martin Scorsese, but I know he's worked with Thelma Schoonmaker, the same editor since the 70s. And that there was that one year where he put out The Aviator, which is almost three hours long and a very long Bob Dylan documentary. And I'm wondering, how did, how did you, you couldn't possibly have been in the editing room much while shooting and, 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 you know, he must be doing something like I'm doing, you know, signing off on things. He probably is like actually going into the editing room to watch things and exchange notes, but he's still, Thelma is as much a filmmaker as he is. And uh, that's not to rationalize my behavior, but I, I did feel guilty that I wasn't doing my own editing for a long time. I felt I had to say things. Uh, I started with a lot of storyboards and then I shot a ballet adaptation of Dracula, an unlikely thing. Uh, and I just couldn't storyboard it because I, could, uh, I used to storyboard a close-up of this person, then a reverse close-up of another, and a two-shot, an establishing shot, very ordinary. My first four films looked like that, and all the cam cameras are on a tripod, stationary, composed frames. But with the ballet, I had to learn to move the camera a lot. And, and I, storyboarding it was, you know, storyboarding a pas de deux was, you know, the first box had two stick figures in it looking into each other's eyes. And then, and then I go, lunch. <laughs> like I did, you know, the dance around, like it takes, you know, how to do it takes up a lot of space. And, uh, and so I just learned to just try to capture as much as possible. And I started shooting with two cameras at once. Sometimes I would even, just to be flip, uh, hand a camera to someone visiting the set and say, go hide behind that potted plant over there and try to get some shots. And they didn't have fun getting some shots. We have some more footage to cut together. We covered it more like a sporting event. And ballet dancers are every bit as much uh, athletes as they are actors. And so it was half sporting event, half film. And we covered it like a football game or a hockey game or something with multiple cameras. And, and then just edited it together. And ever since then, I've just kept the camera moving, always searching for a shot that's a little better than I'm first seeing. And so the camera's always moving, always searching. I always have a, that's my camera, and I always have a second camera who's a more traditionally trained uh, director of photography who's getting a standard two shot or a standard establishing shot. So I know that the standard vocabulary, the grammar is there if we need it. And then there's usually something kind of wonky and out of focus and searching and moving always, and that's my camera. And so we always <laughs> cut between this crazy things. Half the time I forget to turn the camera on and I press record when I say cut, go cut! And I press record and <laughs> or something and I get five minutes of me you know, going to the bathroom or talking to someone. And so I have a camera assistant now just to make sure that you're pressing record at the right time. And then, and then I just kind of am allowed to do whatever I want. And, and about half the time my footage is used and about half the time the, the more conventional vocab and responsible and good cinematographer is there to get things. So you get a weird collaboration going there, too. It's, it's just ridiculously collaborative, and there's so many variables rolling around all at once with film. It's literally like dropping a bag of ball bearings on the floor. I kind of, kind of like that. That brings me back, actually, to the seances project, which is you maybe, maybe some of you have heard of the Kuleshev effect, the experiment where uh, the Soviet filmmaker Lev Kuleshev cut a uh, a close-up of Ivan Muskukin, the Soviet actor, with an ambiguous expression on his face, and he showed 
Um, first, he cut a bowl of soup with the a face and asked viewers, what's, what's, what's the expression on the actor's face? And they would all say, hunger. And then he cut a sultry woman, and it's lust on his face, but it's the same shot. And then another one, a dead child, and it's grief. And, but it's exactly the same shot. I'm excited by this uh, Kuleshev ex uh, experiment where uh, just the context of a shot changes everything. And just the idea of all the ball bearings rolling around, variables in the making of film, I thought, why not see how many ball bearings you can get rolling around in the watching of a film? So thus, the seances project really would have as many different variables, as, as many different um, color timings, many different s pieces of music, soundtrack, uh, little plot twists. The intertitles can recontextualize what the actors are doing. It would be this kind of always rolling, always roiling um, Kuleshev mass that could produce something good now and then and something that's just like listening to AM radio in between stations uh, the other half of the time. Well, I want to thank Guy for being here tonight, sharing yeah. his insights, memories, ideas, his latest work. And it was a marathon. Thank you. And above all, <laughs> a great time. Yeah.